There is this sense of um, my task is to live and to thrive. This is a podcast entitled What We Will Abide. In this episode, I have a conversation with a friend of mine, Nick Peterson, who is a pastor in Lancaster um, and a member of many organizations, including Black Lives Matter. Uh, who is soon to leave for a Ph.D. program at Emory University in Atlanta. The idea is to talk to people I know about um, how they see the world, and mostly I've chosen them because I know that they see the world in somewhat of a similar way that I do, which is that there are these tremendously systemic problems that we're all facing, and each of them meets those systemic problems from their own particular angle, right? And that they have local solutions that they are providing. Now, you have already said via text that you don't have any solutions. <laughs> so I'm Nick Peterson. Uh, I am a, uh, a cisgender black man. Um, and I got to where I am in terms of like locality or <laughs> ideologically, uh, anything like locality and well, your locality is soon to change. Yeah. So, so I've been here in Lancaster for almost 20 years, um, and came here for, uh, for college. I did my undergrad work at, uh, Franklin and Marshall. And then did graduate work at uh, Lancaster Theological Seminary. Um, my own experience is very much informed by being uh, a child of the um, of black communities and also um, black religious communities, especially uh, the black church. Uh, and so much of of what has shaped me has sort of been moving between uh, predominantly black religious and communal worlds and uh, predominantly white intellectual uh, worlds and professional worlds. Uh, and so in addition to going to Franklin and Marshall and, and Lancaster Seminary, I also worked at both of those places. Uh, and so much of my professional career has been uh, being one of a few um, black and brown folks in predominantly white institutions. So what's that been like? Terrible? Has it been terrible? Uh, no. I mean, a lot of, I think, as is the case with a lot of kinds of formation, uh, you really don't realize that you have been formed uh, or that you are being formed until distance and a new context, a new environment starts to uh, raise those questions. I can recall sort of, it wasn't really until my senior year at Franklin and Marshall that it clicked for me what it meant to be a student within that context and particularly a successful student. Much of my learning did not happen in the traditional classroom. It didn't happen because I was paying attention in lectures. Uh, it happened in the conversations that I had with, with faculty members in the hallway uh, about questions that I found interesting that weren't central to the work that we were doing in the classroom. Uh, it was, uh, 
it was sort of in participating in various student activities uh, and, and leading in various student organizations where I started to develop my own sense of identity, my own sense of the validity of my questions, the validity of my concerns, uh, and being able to sort of act out on some of those and using uh, some of the um, uh, interrogative uh, um, skills, intellectual skills that the classrooms was in, the classroom was intended to um, afford. And I was interested in what what it meant for black and Latino students to be at predominantly white institutions. And in addition to being students, having to also um, be sort of the curators and the, the docents of the multicultural experience. So there was sort of like a double duty. In addition to being a student, you also had to um, sort of be willing to engage in cultural dialogue uh, that was not sort of part of, that was not expected for white students. Uh, but your presence sort of meant that you were willing to to go in those conversations. So part of where that led was it led to me doing a senior project where uh, I wanted to look at how um, student satisfaction uh, for black and Latino students, um, how that was informed by their expectations coming into a predominantly white institution. And right now you are packing up your apartment as anyone can see um, and heading down to Emory to, to do, to get, well, you tell us. Yeah. So I'm headed to Emory and I'll be doing a a PhD in the graduate division of religion uh, in a course of study called person, community and religious life. Uh, And so part of what my research interests uh, there sort of center around uh, on, uh, on these two sort of subfields called liturgics and homiletics, Uh, homiletics dealing with, sort of preaching um, and uh, liturgics dealing with worship. And within that, some of my my, my research questions center on um, the legacy of white supremacy uh, and mainline Protestantism. Uh, and and if there, uh, I'd like to explore if there are ways to discern liturgically what it means for, uh, or what white supremacy looks like. Um, so aesthetically, some of these things can be readily observable when you walk into a mainline church and you see stained glass windows with white Jesus, white saints, uh, clearly all of European descent. Uh, and um, so I'm interested in sort of exploring that. That That's sort of like a, a background piece. My more important questions center around what does it mean to uh, sort of think radically and in- radically inclusively about uh, religious practice? And so when I came here and I, I and I started to attend uh, Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, it was the first time that I really encountered a Christ who was interested in the welfare and well-being of whole persons in an entire community. So this church was running like a needle exchange. They were doing HIV and AIDS counseling and testing. Uh, they were doing uh, um, uh, a they basically just had an open door policy for kids after school where they could come. They could do their homework in a safe space uh, and uh, and have access to computers. And the way that I got there was we were doing a tutoring program from some folks from FNM. So we would come a couple of days during the week after school to do tutoring. Uh, and the community, the, the, the church, understood this as sort of essential to what it meant to live out the gospel. Um, 
that was very different than my own sort of upbringing where living out the gospel meant you didn't do these things and you did do these things and uh, was very much focused on uh, on your individual kind of behaviors and not really thinking more communally. And that's sort of the mission of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, as stated, is to minister to this whole person, this whole community. Um, and in seminary, I started to recognize that the kinds of questions that I was interested in, uh, particularly with the, the 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 issues that are of import in black and brown, you know, uh, religious and communal contexts, which are less concerned about things like the hypostatic union and how can Jesus be both God and divine, which are very much essential questions for the Western philosophical tradition. Um, but within my context, my lived context, it's questions around justice and liberation. Uh, it's questions that sort of deal with um, above and beyond the uh, in in, um, in theology, what we would call orthodoxy, the right worship, the right way to think, the right way to believe about God, uh, and really what would be orthopraxis, uh, which would, would really center around what is the way to be community? What is the way to actually live into, live out of? Well, there's always a, I mean, in every tradition, yeah. there's always a divide between those two things. There's what the elite wants you to think because it protects their power and what people are actually doing. Right. I mean, the way I've understood what the practice is like, well, okay, what's the actual, what are the facts on the ground here? Mm-hmm. How are people actually, you know, enacting these things in their everyday lives? This leads me to a question. What is the preacher's job? So you're the preacher, right? In a sense. I mean, you've been and yeah. you will be. What is your job? So my, <laughs> if you ask me what my job yeah. is versus what my congregation may <laughs> believe. No, I, now I'm asking you what you um, So within the, the, uh, within the Christian tradition, and if I were to align myself theologically, uh, I would put myself within the progressive, um, the liberal progressive side. Uh, in many respects of, of the Christian faith. Um, but a large part of what I understand my job to be as the, as the preacher pastor uh, is, is, is fundamentally to, um, to articulate, uh, twofold, to articulate for my community in ways that make sense for our context. So, my task is to to do my best to understand the day and the time that we live in, uh, to know the signs of the time, to be able to, you know, uh, and 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 again to sort of again uh, to put myself in a there is a within uh, within the liberal progressive camp there is a, a particular um, sort of uh, delineation of of prophetic preaching. And the idea uh, behind prophetic preaching, sort of following in the, the prophetic tradition of the biblical witness, is that the prophet needs to know not only what God is saying, but needs to know what's going on with the people. Because God is speaking to the people in time and in space and in lived experience. Uh, and so it's not prophetic in the, I'm going to tell you the future, you know, tomorrow you will walk outside and yada, yada, yada. But it's prophetic in sort of finding that synthesis uh, between this is what, what what God desires, what we understand the you know the the divine and ineffable ineffable to uh, to desire or to to want to be bringing about in the world, and then this is where we are, uh, and so that prophetic task is to help the people to recognize both where we are as a people 
and where we understand or where we where God seems to be. So what are the signs, right? What I, what should I be seeing and how should I be understanding? So so the signs I would say, and and this is to use probably um, language that comes out of the uh, out of sociology and uh, and and political. Uh, economy conversations, but one of the signs is that we are living in a day and age, a time uh, where empire, uh, and by empire, I mean the uh, the um, the <laughs> most clearly uh, America, and uh, and particularly our version of empire, uh, unlike previous versions uh, of empire, which were. Uh, dominated by a kind of leader voice and a military. Uh, our empire is sort of this pronged giant of corporatism, you know, where we have corporations who who really get to function. If I were to sort of connect metaphors, um, corporations sort of function like demons in the New Testament. So demons are these things that possess people and uh, they oftentimes can cause self-harm but the self-harm only impacts the person who is possessed by the demon and not the demon itself. So the demon sort of gets to function with control, with flexibility. It gets to actually be embodied in humans, but it doesn't actually have the same responsibility of being human. Yeah, when Jesus, you know, he doesn't kill demons. He just gets them out of people. They're not harmed in any way. They just leave. Right. So it's, and, they, and, and they sort of have, their, their, there's the wake of their presence sort of uh, behind them. And I think that there is something to be said about the fact that Jesus does not destroy demons in his earthly ministry, um, but that he's constantly at least causing them to flee and that they recognize when he's present. So if you look through the Gospels, for instance, I'm gonna, I don't mean to, to move into uh, do it. just to a biblical text, but in looking through the Gospels, um, especially Mark's Gospel, demons are the first to recognize who Jesus is. So Jesus walks into the synagogue. Very few people And the man, him. right, who is filled with his spirit, the spirit speaks and is like, oh, Jesus, you know, son of David, son of God, you know, have mercy on me. Yeah. Uh, and the people don't even know who. His disciples are. are <laughs> right. They're like, of all. They're, right, they're like, uh, who are you? We, we were no. just fishing, but he's like, come follow. They never so. get any of it. Miracles, what, huh? Right. So the but the demons are constantly aware of you know of what what's taking place, uh, and so in that prophetic tradition, uh, and sort of falling after if if again this is the the preacher trying to connect these realities, um, if we understand uh, these uh, the day and times that we live in to be times where a large way that the empire functions to keep us participating is through sedation uh, and particular kinds of sedation uh, our access to you know unlimited technology uh, and information that that technology provides you know I was joking folks I was like if you really want a revolution in America break the turn, turn off your yeah turn off the internet and turn off the phone lines like if you cut off you know the way that we're wired uh, and the way that we're connected um, people will literally be in the streets and um and in serious protest because that's so essential, you know, the entertainment, the fact that we spend billions of dollars a year on movies, on these blockbuster films that will be in theaters for a few weeks, you know, maybe a month or two. Um, but these budgets that they, you know, are increasingly becoming larger and larger and larger. Um, but it's entertainment. 
you know, and if we you pay. were a movie star, people would actually be listening to this podcast. Right, right, right. So, and that's right. That's the other piece is that we we definitely have, which again, like history repeats itself, and and all of these patterns. So it's not that there are new new motives and new ambitions. Uh, it's just that our particular tools, you know, are modernized and they're contextual in the, to our particular context. So we're numb. We're sedated. Um, what's going on while we're like there's something going on behind the curtain, right? Like that's that's Empire's biggest, its biggest uh, thing is that it is artifice, right? It, it, it's like it's like you know, it's the magician's trick. It's misdirection. So while we're numbed and sedated, what what is Empire doing? I think it's twofold. One is obviously as as is the case uh, to use another biblical example. There was a man, a, a farmer, a rich farmer, who. Um, had filled his barns with his harvest. And he decided, you know what? I need to build me some bigger barns. Uh, and so he went ahead and built bigger barns. And eventually he died. And, you know, there's this whole conversation between him and one of his slaves who laid outside his gate begging. Um, and so, you know, we have uh, in this in this present context, there is still this desire for more, you know. And, and I think that that's human. Greed is human. I'm greedy. I know other folks are greedy. Um, you know, th- that is definitely one of the, the realities of, of being human. I think there's also something to be said of power and uh, and proximity, you know, to power um, and and what that means and how that's valued, how that's valued in, in our society. And so I think, you know, to talk about what's happening behind the curtains, it, I would here's actually what, where I would really sum it. Um, sum it up for America in particular and the West in particular even uh, the modern West is that our sense of wealth, well-to-do-ness you know upward mobility um, there is this underlying foundation that we haven't really reckoned with that that actually is required in order for us to exist the way we exist uh, and that is the exploitation of human labor right um so the only reason I'm able to wear this T-shirt that was made in the Philippines is because Haynes paid, you know, uh, $2 for 20 people to work all day at a factory making these T-shirts. Um, and I don't see it. You know, so the strategy of, of finding ways to, again, to exploit labor and not only exploit labor, but obviously to exploit land and natural resources um, I think that this is the work that happens behind, you know, while the rest of us are sleeping. Um, a few weeks ago, BET, Black Entertainment Television, had their BET Awards. And they gave uh, the celebrity Jesse Williams um, the uh, Humanitarian of the Year Award. And he gave this really great speech that went viral. And uh, as people were sort of celebrating and lauding, you know, uh, Jesse's speech, uh, I sort of raised these points that, look, the more his speech goes viral, the more Viacom, which is the parent company for BET, rakes in from the clicks. And so people were complaining like that their version, you know, the YouTube video that they had of his speech, that it was cut off and they're trying to block Jesse's speech from, you know, going viral. I'm like, no, they're actually trying to make sure that the only clicks that work are their clicks. Right. You know, because this is how um, they make money. media right, makes money off of the clicks, the advertisements and, and those pieces. And what became more, you know, upsetting for me was the fact that not only 
will there be all of these clicks for Jesse's speech, but none of the profits that come from the advertising revenue and the, you know, the revenue that comes from these clicks will make it to the hands of the causes that Jesse stood for in his speech. Which um, were? Black Lives Matter. And he was awarded the award in large part for a documentary, uh, which the name of I can't remember right now, that he had worked on and, and helped to, uh, to produce. Uh, and so here it is that he's been standing, you know, with, uh, with, you know, within this movement for black lives. And it's not that those things will be supported by, by the profits that are, you know, that are generated from his particular speech going viral. And so there are some who are like, oh, that's, you know, he used his platform. It's like, well, he used his platform, but the platform used him, right? So he used his platform and we celebrate, we're excited, you know, that he said something that we agree with and that he said it really well and that he looks really good and that people will listen to him. <laughs> um, but the platform is excited that even if you don't like it, you'll still click so you can then, you know, troll it uh, in the comment section. So for them, you know, it's a win-win situation. So the more, you know, bombastic it is, the better. Yeah. Uh, which I think is in, in large part why someone like Donald Trump can assail to the political heights that he has is because uh, clicks work, you know. You were saying proximity to power, and that reminded me of the earlier, right before we started recording, about our conversation about the Democratic National Convention, because that's that is the the epitome of proximity. What proximity to power looks like? I mean, all those people get up on stage, make great speeches, or not, like they, you know, or not. Yeah. <clears throat> They're there for one reason. Um, they're not there to implement social change. They're not. It is political theater. It, yeah, and yeah. and I I mean if so, so so like we you know that this is a piece of empire, but but again, it, it's all just smokescreen. It's all just scrim to blind people to like. I, you put it the way you put it was perfect. I think it's exploitation of labor. Um, and uh, this reminds me, I, I just have to tell you the story. I think you might find it amusing. Um, in the car with Josie. Josie's my son. He's four years old. Mm-hmm. I was going to go buy him soccer cleats because <laughs> I was. And, of course, I did think like what I always think about buying things because I always think about it. I'm going to go, but I'm not going to, it's not to keep me from buying it. But I, I do think about what you were talking about, uh, exploitation of labor, and who's selling, who's labor to whom, and, and what people actually get in return. And um, we went for him, we didn't find him, and I talked about buying them on the internet. And he goes, okay, let's go home, we'll get them off the internet, and then we can go to the park and play. And of course I had to explain to him that, well, unless I have a drone from Amazon, it's not, it's not coming right away. And he's like, and then he, he sat there and he thought for a second, and he goes, and I don't know exactly what his thought process was, but he goes, so are the people making the cleats, are they working right now? Are they working all the time? Do they never sleep? Or when they are sleeping, do they get woken up to make the cleats? And I honestly don't know how he came up with that. I don't know if he was thinking, well, if you can go to the internet anytime, doesn't mm-hmm. mean that people are making cleats and then pushing them through your computer. And I don't know if that was it, but I had no real answer for him other mm-hmm. than, yes, they are working all the time. Yes, they do get woken up and don't get enough sleep to make the cleats. Not to make him feel guilty about the cleats, yeah. not that he would because he doesn't have that capacity yet, but I, you know, it just floored me. And, uh, you know, I get caught sometimes between, like, being a parent and being a preacher. Like, I, I, how much do you want to dump on your four-year-old child? Some yeah. things I say to them, like, I really shouldn't because it's, yeah, like, when Nora came home, she's seven, and she's like, oh, we're learning about Lewis and Clark. 
buying the land. You know, Louisiana purchased buying land from the French. I'm like, yeah, the French didn't really own it. They stole it from the indigenous people who lived there before. Yeah. And like the look on her face while she's making herself like a cream cheese bagel was crushing. <laughs> but I still feel like I have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that gets at the invisibility of our socialization. Right? So, um, you know, I grew up in an area that was uh, surveyed by Lewis and Clark. But the narrative that was what, what was cast was such that it was clearly from the perspective of people who had an interest in the story being told a particular way, right? Um, and uh, more recently, I had this, <laughs> I had a similar experience when I was up in Jim Thorpe uh, and in the little train station, they have these placards that tell the story of the town. And like one of the placards is like, and they signed the treaty with the Native Americans, but the Native Americans wouldn't uphold that part of the treaty. And they kept ramshacking the villages and da 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 da, da. Um, And so if you think that, that, that we've whittled down this kind of narrative because we think that this narrative is palatable to children and that this is the narrative that children should have, um, think of the level of suspicion that we set them up for when it comes time to actually hear the truth. Right. So 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 basically what we do is that we make complexity suspicious. Mm -hmm. We make nuanced narratives suspicious um, because there's something at stake. If we can clearly say these were the good guys, this is cowboys and Indians. These are the good guys. These are the cops and robbers. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Uh, and so if we can keep the simplicity. And if that can be so normal, normalized in our socialization, then when it comes time to actually do uh, a deep analysis, when it comes time to sort of start to parse out, you know, the, the, the these, uh, you know, um, these nuanced distinctions in our social fabric and our larger cultural narrative, um, no one is equipped to have, like, no one's been given the tools to do that because we've been like, no, it's, well, they didn't mean it or like we then move... Because there's because it's not only just the, the the simplicity of the story, but there's also the morality that's embedded in that. So education becomes just re I mean it has been just re repeating these same old tired but happy stories about the you know the American Revolution and wonders that wonders. And, and from my on. perspective, that that is that is the heart and soul of white supremacy. The heart and soul for me of white supremacy is not the Ku Klux Klan. Because the Ku Klux Klan and the particularly the Southern resistance and Southern Jim Crow would not have any teeth if we hadn't already had these narratives that would flatten down, you know, the stories uh, and the narratives of how this country was established. Plus the sheets are silly. Well, they're decorative. <laughs> I mean, I think that there is that, that, that the sheets are probably more consistent in a line of, of actually having particular vestments. Uh, to celebrate uh, your your particular religious tradition, um, but it makes you more obvious, you know, for you to be for you to be seen in terms of like, okay, we know that they're coming because <laughs> we can see their guard. Um, but meanwhile, again, further behind the curtains, uh, there are people who benefit from, you know, the the cloaked work of a Ku Klux Klan, the intellectual tradition that I uh, sort of put myself in within. The African-American community uh, is one 
that privileges the embodied experience, right? Um, it, it, it privileges mother wit, you know, it privileges um, sort of uh, the kind of wisdom and the kind of um, a, a value set that oftentimes is not valuable within the Western intellectual tradition. Uh, and so for me, there are ways that uh, that the kind of uh, teleological approach, the, as Malcolm X would say, by any means necessary, um, that, there, that there is this sense of um, my task is to live and to thrive. And in a context where that is increasingly uh, publicly denied, um, you know, resistance becomes the, you know, be, be, becomes necessary for survival. Um, but even outside of that, and this is, you know, to kind of, in some ways, leapfrog to that, you know, what, what are solutions? Um, there is something to be said about uh, how we come to value ourselves in a way, in such a way, that our energies are not spent trying to convince others to value. This is so bad, but I think that this is, again, informed by my own sense of, of gospel call, that the real task for us to become humane and to become fully human is learning how to die, right? Uh, and and by that, I mean... Bad. I don't, I don't, well, it, it's bad because that, that is... That's antithetical to what our pleasure. We ignore death. Not only no, no, we don't ignore death. We pretend it doesn't exist. And this is the biggest mistake well, we've made. Except as a when it comes to our enemies. And we don't. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> if we don't, we we have really. This is um. What's her name? She wrote how to be a woman. Caitlin Moran. She wrote. I don't know if you know that book. She has a page in there where she talks about like how we don't honor death anymore so therefore we can't value life and so it makes it very easy for us to fly a drone or a sauna and just obliterate mm -hmm. 80 people civilians or not right so I, I, I'm with you on this like we don't know how, we don't want to know how to die yeah. we don't want to think about it we jam our faces up with Botox and we dye our hair and we pretend it doesn't exist I think what we can learn from communities and people uh, whose lives have been characterized by uh, austerity and suffering um, is to learn how to die, right? To learn how to how to to be dignified, um, how to be human, you know, in those kinds of experiences. That our humanity is not best displayed in how we can accumulate, how we can look at what I've created, right? Look at what I've made. One of the things that I can rhetorically that I can appreciate about the Black Lives Movement is just the simple refrain: "Stop killing us." Mm -hmm. I'm not asking you to like me. I'm not asking you to let me move into your neighborhood. I'm not asking you to let me date your daughter or your son. I'm not asking for anything. Just stop killing me, right? You know, there's something about that. Just put a moratorium <laughs> on state-sanctioned, you know, state-allowed murdering of black bodies. Um, you know, that that's a very different conversation than I want to be at your school and I want to... Because my, my concern with even this sort of Anything beyond that is, again, the way that we would privilege a world and a view, um, a class, really a class structure, a class status that's only possible through exploitation. So it's only possible to have the kinds of dynamics, the, the range 
uh, the dynamicism that we see within the American class structure, that's only possible if exploitation is at the foundation. Um, and, and we can talk about the market and the free market. Free market is built on the premise of the valuing of whiteness, right? Such to the point that nothing has to change on my block. But if you change the how, like change the people who live in these houses to black and brown people, instantly somehow these houses are not worth as much. The bricks have not changed. The foundations have not changed. The features have not changed. Uh, but just by virtue of the color, somehow this block is now not hot. Um, okay, you, you've said the, the the piece that I want to focus on is this notion that. Um, you're trying to live and thrive. And you're trying to live and thrive in um, a society that, let's face it, in any number of ways, whether they're subtle or overt, wants to kill you. Uh, that seems like it would be endlessly frustrating and demoralizing. How do you do it? This is what, um, this is where, again, my, my faith practices would come in. There's a scripture written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and he's writing to Timothy, and he tells Timothy, I believe it's Timothy, um, that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and a sound mind. Um, There is something that in that thriving and that striving is the, the reminder and the leaning and the pressing into knowing what it means to love and to be loved and to take joy in that love as a way of, of, of undermining the fear that that's trying to be provoked uh, by those forces that, that seek your demise. Um, I think that that for me is what makes Jesus's own demise so powerful is that he goes to a cross loving those clueless disciples, right? He goes to a cross and while on this cross, having love for his mother, you know, seeks to, to speak to one of his disciples to, you know, uh, to receive her, to take her in, you know, as his own mom, uh, to provide for her. Um, and so for me, there is, you know, and I, 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 and this is, I do not mean the cheap love or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, you know, would talk about cheap grace, meaning where there's nothing at stake, um, but the kind of love that is not, that does not wince at death, uh, but that recognizes that death is a part of, you know, that it's a part of the narrative uh, and that death is not, it doesn't have the final word. I mean, this is what, if any, if the resurrection stands to uh, say anything of import, um, it's that death uh, and the, the, the factors that precipitate, the negative, the, the, the injustices that precipitate death and make death um, excessive, you know, in any given context, that those things don't, that that approach, that that way of living does not get the last word. Uh, and so for me, that's where my own faith, my own hope Rest, uh, resting is that that you know it may cost my life, and I'm not. I mean, and I'm not on the like. I am not on the front lines. I'm not being arrested. I don't have my face in the ground. Uh, you know, I'm not. That's not where my my daily reality is. Um, but I also recognize that if you are a voice that starts to speak openly against the power structure, the 
powers that the powers that be, uh, so to speak, um, that 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 that's a threat. You know, that that is a uh, that that's enough of a a great example would be just to have young black people protesting in cities is is enough for cities to come out in military right like full military riot gear just because young black and brown people have gathered to protest just because they're standing in the street and they're shutting down a roadway um so if the state is willing to respond with just that low level you know with that low level of resistance um so yes, for me, when I think of solutions, I don't think that the solutions lie in uh, the kind of uh, uh, if we can just get the right representation in a, in a hall of Congress, if we can just get minimum wage to a living wage, if we could just get more funding into education, if we could just reduce student debt, um, you know, that those things sort of serve as like the, the solutions uh, so much as if we just learn how to die, like, and by die, I mean, like, if that's live with less, if that's, you know, um, just because we can doesn't mean we should Mm -hmm. just because we can think and, you know, try to move technology in a particular way doesn't mean we should. But as long as we have this notion of progress, and as long as we have this idea that we can always make things better, if we can just figure out the next, you know, uh, technological wave, um, then I think we, we, we just continue to set ourselves up for more of the same. During my conversation with Nick Peterson, I was uh, thinking about a book I just finished um, by a Japanese author by the name of Shusaku Endo. Uh, the book is called Deep River. It was published in 1990. And in fact, was recommended to me by um, a former colleague of mine and a good friend who is also a humanities teacher, um, her name is Alyssa Quinn, and I thank her um, for this book because it was it was a really really good one. Um, the book is largely about a group of uh, Japanese tourists, essentially, who go to Varanasi, the city of Varanasi in India, um, there to mostly to witness the rituals surrounded that surround the um, the Holy Ganges River um, for various reasons that are unique to each of them. Uh, there is one character who goes um, in large part to seek out uh, an individual um, whom she remembers from her past. It is through these the interaction between these two characters that I get the sense that the book is very much about what Nick was talking about, which is to say learning how to die. Uh, one of the characters, uh, a tangential character whom we learn about through the eyes of one of the main characters, a woman, um, is a man whom the woman torments during her college days because he's a pariah, an outcast. Um, and she is both drawn to him and repulsed by him uh, because he is so on the outs. He is such an outcast. Um, and in fact, he literally becomes an outcast when he goes to India. Uh, while in university in Japan, uh, he is um, a devout Catholic, which puts him on the outs with his fellow students who are very secular and bohemian. Uh, He moves on to France where he tries to become a Catholic priest and is kind of ejected because of his pantheism. And he winds up in India um, where the Hindus don't much 
accept him either. And so he winds up uh, as someone who patrols the streets in the early morning hours in filthy garb, um, aiding the dead and dying, which is a task left to the outcasts, um, those who are not even part of the Hindu caste system. Um, this life that he's led really upsets this main character who is very much a, a woman of civilization, but who is deeply lonely uh, and deeply empty. And she, as I said, keeps seeking him out uh, throughout the novel, and finally in the novel's, uh, I guess, penultimate scene, he dies uh, ignominiously on the stone steps leading down to the Ganges River. And she's furious with him because she's um, berated him throughout the novel about uh, the poor choices that he's made and the empty life that he's lived, searching for a god who doesn't exist, uh, leading um, a truly ascetic lifestyle when he could have so much more. Uh, and he says to her, lying there, his neck broken and bleeding, this is the life that I was meant to lead. She can understand it. She still calls him a fool in those moments, angry though she is. And her anger is indicative of the fact that she, I think, on some level, truly understands that he is at peace with what his life has been, though short, though brutish, um, and ultimately, though it ends in this awful way. For him, he spent that life learning how to die, which so few of us know how to do. Living in a culture that is so terrified of death and so unwilling uh, to meet it face to face. Thanks for listening to this, the third installment of What We Will Abide, a podcast that I'm producing uh, with the help of my wife, who is a willing editor. Uh, and also, a uh, special thanks today um, to Tessa Barrett, who provided the cover art that you see. More to come. Original music is by Morning Stillness. The song is called Black Vulture. I see the black vulture picking at the carcass in the road. Here's the purifier, Numa 